0: I'm Rosie Matteo, and welcome to From Pot to Popular, a new podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Welcome to today's episode of Pop to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Matteo. Today we're joined by Bob Hoban, founder of Hoban Law Group, one of the longest running law firms in the cannabis industry. Bob is one of the most prolific attorneys in the space, and he's gonna to talk to us about his journey into this industry. Welcome, Bob.
1: It's good to be here, Rosie. Thanks for having me. I hope all is well in the uh, Northeast. <laughs>
0: Yes, uh, you know, coming off a of Labor Day, getting into our, our autumn soon. I know you guys have some snow, so it's just a a crazy time. But I wanted to, you know, get into it. So, um, most industry veterans know that you're one of the leading cannabis attorneys in the industry. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about your background and why you founded at and Law Group.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so, back in 2006, my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And when that diagnosis came down and we began to uh, go through the motions of meeting with the doctors and the oncologists, uh, the prognosis, the outlook was not very good. She was given six months to live and uh, she was in New Jersey, my home state, where I'm from at the time. So um, my kids were very young at that point in time. So I uh, bought a condo out here in in Evergreen, Colorado, about 30 miles west of Denver, where I live. So she could spend half of the month when she wasn't uh, undergoing chemo so that we could spend time with her and that the kids got to know her. In the context of doing that, I would, I would visit her every morning uh, and make her breakfast and uh, administer certain sets of pills and you had to track all of the pills because there was a, a whole regimen. And uh, what became obvious very quickly for me was that taking those high powered opiates, those Oxycodones, Oxycontins uh, with the extended release it was nearly impossible to keep them down, so to speak, uh, in the morning without having food in your stomach. And you just felt so crummy that you would never be able to put food in your stomach. So it was this catch-22, knowing what I knew uh, and what I know about cannabis at the time in terms of being something that would facilitate, you know, elimination of nausea and maybe even an appetite. uh, We began to play around with it, understanding that uh, li- literally in a life and death scenario, my mother wouldn't do something that was illegal. Uh, otherwise, you know, consume cannabis at that point in time. Uh, so we had a program in Colorado. There were no dispensaries. This was just a caregiver network uh, and a constitutional provision. Long story long, um, my mother did live for about three and a half years with pancreatic cancer. The bulk of three of those years without any opiates using uh, forms of medicinal cannabis. And that's what opened the door for me to focus my law firm's practice on this. We began to realize that those caregivers that had the lawful right to dispense cannabis and produce it, manufacture it, grow it, I guess, um, that they just really didn't have an outlet. And uh, they didn't have lawyers that understood how to operate in a business fashion, and that was my background, uh, working as a corporate litigator and a corporate transactional attorney, for a number of years before I formed this law firm uh, at some very large uh, Western regional firms. So my focus and my practice became uh, quickly focused on cannabis. We built out a firm on December 30th of 2009. We won a landmark case across the United States, which was the first time in US history where a court ordered a city to allow a dispensary to stay open under a constitutional revision in Colorado. From that point forward literally the first week of january 2010 our phone began to ring off the hook and we were engaged not just across the state of colorado but in multiple states around the country seeing that opportunity we began to deliberately open uh, offices state by state uh, began to populate our firm with attorneys that had expertise in a variety of areas so that it uh, Businesses didn't have to hire three and four and five law firms for different areas of expertise. We built that in-house. To date, we have six very distinct practice groups, and uh, we also operate internationally. And then hemp came along in approximately 2011 as uh, something, uh, and we began to operate the first uh, CBD companies in the United States based on strategies that we developed. They were San Diego-based companies, Canavest and Hemp Meds. Uh, And then the CBD explosion took place. So we were very much at ground zero of opening the first dispensaries in Colorado, the first dispensaries in multiple other states, and then opening up the first CBD uh, manufacturers and distribution outlets in the United States. And uh, it's really been a wild ride, Rose.
0: Yeah. And so talk to me about that. Like, what was the legal landscape like? Like some of your um, colleagues at other firms, like what was the reaction you got when you started, you know, delving into cannabis? What was it like, you know, on the landscape side of things?
1: That's a great question, because, you know, the, 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 the tables have turned dramatically. So when we first started to practice in this area, certain lawyers uh, that I knew that I had worked with at some larger firms said things like, well, aren't you you know, basically breaking the law? You're conspiring to violate federal law on a daily basis. Uh, that appears to me to be unethical. To Mitch, my response was, well, as these, these complex regulations and complex scenarios began to play out, these people needed legal counsel. Um, and I found it to be our obligation to do so um, and to make sure that they were fully apprised of the federal illegality, but that they could operate on a state-based level. And then from an ethical perspective, the the state bars began to weigh in state by state. And some of them said, you can't practice in this area at all. Some of them said, you can if there's regulations. And they began to carve exceptions. We got wind very early from our ethics council, uh, who was the the chief of the ethics committee for the state of Colorado, that uh, the state was not going to enforce and in fact, they were going to create a pathway. So it did present those ethical problems um, early on, uh, and that's something that, yeah, that most lawyers uh, should, and, and all lawyers should, but most lawyers do in reality, have at the front of their minds and, and ethics and professional responsibility is very important to us. And then other larger law firms began to make light of the fact that we were a pot law firm, right? Um, you guys are the pot lawyers, uh, as if you know that, that was just some slight And now those very same firms call us almost on a quarterly basis to see if they can buy or merge in our law firm as part of their national or international practice to be their cannabis division. So the, the, the times have changed dramatically. And I imagine you get same, some of the same. Yeah, I'm laughing uh, because some
0: of my old uh, employers, when I, they saw what I was doing would, would say, Oh, it's so funny. It's so cute what you're yes. doing. I'm like, cute, really? And now they all have their own, you know, CBD, uh, you know, practices or a little bit of cannabis. So, you know, I, I share that sentiment where, uh, you know, what they laughed at, you know, they're all trying to get a piece of now.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, it's this niche little thing in a you know thirty billion dollar global industry.
0: Right. Exactly. And talking about you know global um, and and your footprint. So you know we mentioned earlier that you you know your many states are in twenty three states, I believe. But when you first got started, as you mentioned, you um, you were you know responsible for some of the. The bills in Colorado that helped the industry develop. Are there any of these bills or initiatives that you worked on that you're particularly proud of? You know that's brought us here today, where all these other ind- all these other firms or people are wanting to get into the space. What are you most especially proud of from the, you know your early days?
1: Well, I think the the, the 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 pride for me comes from the fact that we we were there when a movement. Became an industry. And that's a tagline I often use. What happens when a movement becomes an industry? It requires a certain level of professionalism and expertise. Because at the beginning days, some of the quote-unquote lead lawyers in the cannabis space, they were criminal defense attorneys because you know there was no reason for civil or, or, or commercial attorneys to understand cannabis necessarily because there was no legal commercial outlets for that. So you had these criminal defense attorneys who, despite their best efforts, really couldn't deliver the goods as it related to employment contracts and, you know, supply contracts and regulatory compliance. So I guess, you know, policy aside, I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that we began to create a category of lawyer known as cannabis attorneys, which really is a misnomer because we're simply commercial attorneys as a group. We just happen to focus on one industry because it, it needs us, we need them, and it's particularly exciting. But from a policy perspective, you know, being involved in crafting legislation in Uruguay, the first country in the world to outright legalize cannabis, uh, and then taking that show on the road, 30, 30 plus countries later, we've created policy and regulations all around the world to govern a commercial regulated industry, all answering that question, what happens when the movement becomes an industry? Uh, it really had to, to step up in professionalism, organization, structure, and certainly uh, legal legal construct.
0: Right, and I think we all see you know that the industry has matured considerably since you started. But do you think there are areas of the industry that still lack legal support or infrastructure? Where do you uh, see holes still?
1: I do. I do. I I see I've got the benefit of sort of looking at this thing from 50 or 60,000 feet above because a, uh, you know, we've got, you know, quite almost literally an army of lawyers that are actually executing working with the clients on a daily basis. But that also affords me this position to sort of look out and see what's happening, almost in a way that I'm detached from it. And sometimes it still does surprise me when I get into the weeds of a transaction on a multi-state operator, for example, who's aggregating a number of dispensaries, to just see how inefficient and not unprofessional, but borderline unprofessional those state-run dispensary and cultivation businesses are run. And I think that that's just a sign of the evolution. That's not so much the case in Colorado anymore, but there's been a regulated commercial industry in Colorado for many, many, many years now. In other states, those first two or three years, because the pattern does repeat itself, state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Some people will say this is a new industry that we don't have any road markers for, and that may be true on some level, but the fact of the matter is every single jurisdiction rolls out the same way, runs into the same pitfalls along roughly the same timelines and the professionalism and in, uh, aggregators come in around the same times. So when you see these patterns, it helps explain it, but it doesn't make it comforting when you're doing a, you know, a 12 to $15 million transaction in state X and its operators, you know, could barely balance their own home budget, let alone uh, the the budget and the compliance required to make sure that that transaction is sound.
0: Right. That brings me to like uh, another question that we're thinking about. So obviously, it's highly regulated space, um, requires a lot of legal support. And, you know, you've seen um, some of the pitfalls that have happened. What are the biggest legal mistakes businesses make when they first start out? And then when they become more mature, right? Like I think, you know, a lot of these uh, legal mistakes they made, it's not, you know, they don't mean to, right? Um, so, how, how can they avoid these things? Or what are the things companies can think about as they're setting up, you know, their programs?
1: I think it's it's twofold. Uh, two things come to mind. The first would be compliance. Compliance is an asset. It is not an adverse condition, and it's been identified as something that's problematic and adverse, and it's difficult to comply with with regulations. The Notion there is that if you embrace compliance and you make that the mantra of your business, then you've just gained a tremendous competitive advantage. At a minimum, what you've done is created a business that other folks would look at that would have a higher value than the next business, so to speak, because you are replete with books and records and compliance documentation and compliance personnel. So that's the first mistake I've seen, particularly on the cannabis or the marijuana side of the industry. I think that when I look at the hemp side of the industry, combined with the marijuana side of the industry, and we've got some definitions that I, I think are, are misplaced oftentimes. As lawyers, we refer to the cannabis industry as the entire industry, which has two sides. It has a marijuana side and it has a hemp side, not cannabis and hemp. Cannabis is the plant in the industry. And we use the legal terminology to distinguish between the two sides. But what's common across those is that people that come from outside of the cannabis industry cannot help us because their experience doesn't translate or that they don't understand how our industry operates. And I've seen that happen far too often when in reality, the industry needs to embrace those outside individuals, particularly ones that have something to add and, and look at integrating cannabis into other existing industries, not requiring those industries to adapt to this industry. And those are two major mistakes.
0: That's great. I think that, that, that is like super interesting. You you can't expect some of these like um uh, you know larger established industries to go our way. We have to figure out a way to make uh you know cannabis companies compliant, you know, to play in those different leagues. I totally well, agree with I mean,
1: think think about that from the hemp perspective for just a moment. Think about the fact that the hemp industry wants to be defined separately. Uh, when most of the products are CBD products. And is CBD really an industry? You know, I wrote a column in Forbes recently that, that got a lot of negative uh, feedback from the hemp industry because they said, yes, yeah, CBD is an industry. And I said, no, CBD is an ingredient that services multiple other industries. And until you realize that, you're not going to be able to succeed in those industries because they're not going to adapt to you.
0: I think that's such a great point, um, and and to the point about your uh, column in Forbes. In addition to being one of the most influential cannabis lawyers, you know, and writers in the U.S., you've also worked on, I believe, more than thirty-five different countries on various policy and regulatory cases. What do you think are the emerging and international cannabis markets to watch, and what could the U.S. market learn from them, or the other way around? You know?
1: Yeah, no, I, I learn something new every day. What what I see is that increasingly these these countries that are looking at regulations or that are adapting their regulations coming online they're learning from other countries around them and the mistakes that were made for example our lawyers in ecuador were instrumental in getting uh, industrial hemp legislation passed there we did a a, educational webinar series just yesterday with a number of people in ecuador to talk about how to focus on this industry. And they, the questions came up, well, why did the Colombian program sort of fall on its face? It's, it's not necessarily dead, but you know, there's been, it's been stagnant for a while. Why is the Mexican program uh, going to be exciting? Uh, what about Brazil? They've got their nationalized healthcare system involved. What happened to the European Union, for example? Why can't we ship things there? What are the regulations there? All basic questions that have caused other programs to either stall or fail. And these newer countries coming to the table trying to avoid those pitfalls. So that is some of the exciting thing is when you talk to them, it's as if you've come from the future because you can tell them what's going to happen next or what they should be thinking about next, not because you're guessing, because you're seeing these patterns emerge and you know what the next issue is going to be because we've been involved in these country after country, state after state. Now, what are the markets to watch? It's really interesting because we see the wisdom had been the European Union is going to be one of the biggest markets in the world with, you know, 450 million plus people and consumers that understand the value of cannabis as a medicinal product or a wellness product with disposable income. And the distribution in those countries has actually narrowed significantly over the last 18 months, not expanded. And that's been compromised even further by the fact that the European Commission, which is effectively the the aggregate FDA body for uh, the European Union members, it's wavered on treating cannabinoids, non-psychoactive cannabinoids like CBD, treating them as a narcotic versus a food ingredient. That's going to further limit... Uh, distribution as that unfolds. So then enter Latin America. For the last three or four years, it's been an export only market, or at least that's the regulatory structure that was put in place. They haven't exported a whole lot of material to date. But some of the countries, is actually coming into a nice rhythm right now for exports and has a really great technical government agency that oversees the, these programs. But nationalized healthcare systems in Brazil and Mexico between those two countries, there's over 350 million people with consumers that are reliant on a nationalized healthcare system that is going to integrate medicinal cannabis in various forms. That is exciting. Now, some people would say, I don't want to do business in Latin America. We all know that the governments are, you know, not easy to deal with and that there's corruption and, and crime. And while those things may be historically true. What I've found in my travels over the last several years is that there are major efforts to eliminate the effects of corruption and major efforts to make sure that these businesses, because there's so much scrutiny on them, are run correctly. So I wouldn't hesitate to jump into those markets.
0: Yeah, and talking about, you know, uh, changing things in markets, I, I want to shift gears a little bit. But as a policymaker or a- people someone's helped help shape policy, it's become more apparent than ever in many states, um, and local cannabis laws are not written to encourage diversity or social equity within the industry. From a policy perspective, what reforms should governments implement to address this issue? You know, we have got a lot of emerging markets. We've got, you know, new states coming online. Like, how can we, as an industry or from a policy side, make sure that social equity, you know, is ingrained in the cannabis programs.
1: Yeah, again, not not to sort of go back to the Forbes thing, but I did just write a column on the importance of social equity in the cannabis space. And when you look at the disproportionate impact on, you know, minority communities under the Controlled Substances Act and the enforcement of marijuana laws across this country, something's got to give here. Now, does a government-sponsored social equity program get us there? Or are those programs more likely to be abused? So let me tell you what I mean there. Early on in most states, vertical integration was required. What that meant was most of these states that opened up early on, they, they opened up before regulation because there was some sort of law or patient permission that you know creative legal constructs allowed for uh, collectives and the like. Well, so these dispensaries, these stores were open before there was state regulation. Then the regulators came around and said, we want to instill as a policy vertical integration, meaning the retailers and the growers had to be in the same business. And that was rare that they were in the same business because it's often been said plant people and people people do not mix. Uh, And we've seen that play out. So then the retailers who were the more often than not, the more business savvy people met the growers and tried to integrate a grower into their business plan and application. They got the license and then they immediately cut the growers out. They used those growers just to get through the licensing process. We've seen various iterations of that story happen over and over and over again, led to litigation. We're starting to see the same thing with some of these social equity programs. Where if I find a, you know, a qualified minority partner to go get a license, then sometimes And, you know, maybe more often than we'd like to admit, those minority uh, individuals are being used because of their status, not really giving a meaningful chance to participate in the business. So having forced policy like that creates those types of abuses, but it is a necessary thing when you look at the, the disproportionate impact of the Controlled Substance Act. And One other note I would make there is I've seen lots of nonprofits in the space trying to equate justice there by creating minority-based business associations, creating uh, opportunities to to help people that have been jailed for so long, like the Last Prisoner Project, to get out of jail now that this is legal. We've seen proactive politicians, believe it or not, proactive politicians, you don't hear that in the same Mm -hmm. sentence very often, and they've gone out and they've Eliminated or commuted sentences for marijuana prisoners serving sentences because of the legality in those states. So it's a combination of all these things that really creates justice in this scenario, but it's not necessarily the most effective in those regulated systems where you put aside a certain number of social equity applications because of the potential abuses, but it is a step in the right direction.
0: And do you think, you know, as somebody who's like helping in a foreign policy, are there any initiatives around this that are getting you excited or any like, you know, solutions to this just from like, from your view?
1: We're great supporters of the Last Prisoner Project uh, financially in terms of helping uh, with pro bono services. One of our attorneys, uh, Sarah Gersten, is the executive director of that uh, group and does a lot of good work. Uh, And there's other groups that do similar type things. So I I like programs like that. Now, when you think about the government-sponsored program, Colorado has just announced that it's going to have a social equity application program. And we've had a commercial regulated industry for a number of years here. So that opens up on January 1. So does that program have a chance to have an impact? We shall see. But I think some of these nonprofit organizations that are driven by equating justice through you know, pro bono legal services and otherwise, I think that's where we're going to have the most impact.
0: Yeah, we're uh, proud supporters of the Last Prisoner as well. We just did a um, 120 mile bike ride, which we were supposed to do in Colorado, but because of COVID, we didn't. So next year, when we do make it to Colorado, we're gonna pull you on on this 120 mile bike ride with us, as many people as we can. We're gonna do. And speaking about January one, I do want to wrap up with. So you guys have really had you know substantial growth. So many countries, so many offices. What is the future of Hope and Law Group? Like, if you look out, you know, five years from now, where do you guys sit?
1: Uh, to your point, so many roads, so many roads, uh, so many pathways here. The, the, uh, what is the future of the Hovind Law Group? Well, we've got a pretty ambitious agenda until uh, March 1st of 2021 to add eight to 10 very specific higher level lawyers to our firm um, to really entrench and build out some of our practice groups. What we call HLG Global is our international practice group, We've got uh, six or seven new additions uh, in the pipeline to that program. uh, And that helps people scale their businesses internationally and understand what's happening in various places. Again, a one-stop shop scenario. But what has been interesting is some of the large consulting companies in the world, big consulting, if you will, they've reached out. And they've reached out to myself and and certain others uh, uh, in our firm to say, We'd like to build a global cannabis consulting division, and we'd like to have folks like you participate and or build it. And that is an interesting opportunity, which begs the question of whether a law firm can continue to exist and also participate in global consulting, because I've always said, and, and this does, doesn't always sit well with people, that the lawyers truly are the institutional knowledge of this industry because the lawyers that have been around and that have been successful are successful because their clients are successful and they help them. And you know, those of us that have been around for, you know, gasp, 10 years in this industry already, uh, we, we must be doing something right. And we've certainly amassed knowledge beyond just being lawyers. We truly are the industry experts because we've seen it all and done it all with our clients and and on our own. So the future could be a mix of global consulting services and legal services, but the immediate future is just making sure that our practice divisions have the highest level of personnel possible. And because of the layoffs in big firms across the country, uh, because of COVID and the economic downturn, uh, we've kind of got our pick right now of really highly qualified individuals. So that's the road we're on. really happy to be there. The future is always exciting, but um, you never know what's around the corner in this industry.
0: <laughs> That's for sure. And, you know, and I, I've interacted, you know, with a lot of the attorneys in your firm and it, and it's exciting to see you guys grow. And we're looking forward to see who's going to be coming on board and wishing you the best of luck um, as you make it through this year. And thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, and, you know, my Last comment would be just, and I've said this to you one-on-one before, really watching what you've done uh, with your organization has been remarkable. And it goes to one of the points I said before about trusting and respecting people that come from outside of cannabis and their expertise. You've obviously brought that to this space and, and you guys have thrived uh, in a major way and, and really happy to see your success and uh, look forward to continuing to, to work together as these years unfold.
0: Sounds great. That that is a great way to wrap up. All right. Thanks so much, Bob.
1: Thank you.